0: Good morning. It's nice to be with you this morning. First Thessalonians is uh, what we will be studying this morning, chapter one of First Thessalonians. Um, this is a, a new series I've, I have been trying to start for some time and kind um, of getting around to it this morning, uh, studying the first chapter of First Thessalonians. The main point of this sermon is uh, fairly straightforward. It's that. Uh, we need the gospel to be more than just words in our lives. Uh, we need what the gospel can do for us, and um, it's not just for those who—it's not just for those who haven't heard it yet. It's for those who have already heard it and still need it. It continues to work in believers, and it's not just for the unsaved. It's for those who are being saved. And, and for it to be powerful, for it to be effective, it has to be more than just words. I'm going to give you just a, well, a fairly brief background on 1st Thessalonians. Um, Thessalonica, the city got its name about 350 years before the time of Paul when a fellow named Cassander uh, expanded, rebuilt the city. It had been called Ferma and he renamed it after his wife. And Cassander was a fairly ruthless character, apparently, but he liked his wife and so he named the city after Thessalonica. About 100 years later, it came under Roman rule and was still under Roman rule during Paul's time. It was the most populated city in Macedonia. It is a very major town And it had three commercial advantages going for it. One was that it, well, of course, it was a seaport town. It was right beside the Mediterranean or the Aegean Sea. And it was on the crossroads of two major trade routes. If you think of of Stanton and 81 and 64, compare that to, you can compare Thessalonica to that. Uh, running east to west was the, the Via Ignatia, which is a major Roman road, and then north to south was a trade route from the sea up to the Danube River, which uh, actually is on the border of Romania. And I, I just out in the state had to see Tefelnik uh, is about a ten and a half hour drive from where I was at in Romania. Assuming you know, everything went well with the border. You know. So uh, this town. Uh, would have had a large Jewish presence, um, not like Philippi, which didn't have a synagogue. And here's how the, town, how the um, church got started in Bethlehem. It was on Paul's second missionary journey. And one of the things that makes this letter a little different from some of the other writings of Paul, is we've got quite a bit of context around uh, what was going on around the time that it was written. And that's quite interesting, really. And so this was on uh, Paul's second missionary journey, Acts 17, and one of the, um, you remember Paul and Silas were trying to figure out where to go next, and he had this vision of saying, this man saying, come over to Macedonia, and so they went to Philippi, and they were thrown into prison, and there was this earthquake and all that, and now we come to Acts 17, and I've invited a, gr- a guest reader to come up here and read this passage from Acts 17. I can't remember which one I got you Acts 17, 1 through ten. Now when they had passed through Antipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was the custom, and on the three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. As did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking from wicked men of, of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come also here. And Jason had received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is no, there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So, Paul preached there three Sabbaths, it says, and the first, the convert, the initial convert, were some Jews, but it's not like many. Uh, a great many devout or God-fearing Greek. so the proselytes who were already uh, following God to the best of their knowledge. Not a few leading women, it says, uh, and mostly not Jews here. In fact, uh, another thing that makes this letter different. First and Second Thessalonians are different from, I think, any other writing of Paul, and that there is not a single quote from the Old Testament in, in these two letters. Pretty unique in that respect. So, not many Jews in this church, probably. Uh, the Acts account says that they were there for three Sabbaths, and then it goes on to talk about this uprising, this riot. You know, it actually doesn't say if they stayed there just three Sundays and then had to leave, or if they stayed a bit longer. And some people think that maybe he stayed a bit longer. And one of the reasons why people think he may have stayed longer is because in verse 9 of today's chapter that we're studying, it says, "...for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God." And you'll see the converts that are listed here in Acts 17, this first part, they don't fall very well into the category of former idol worshippers. Maybe some of those leading women had been worshipping idols. I don't know. But that's that's one reason why people think maybe there was initially a Jewish mission followed up by a Gentile mission. And maybe he was there for longer than just three uh, Saturdays. Another thing was the fact that there are, um, Paul writes this letter, he mentions there being elders in the church. And so that would be another reason to think that maybe Paul had been there a bit longer. Why did Paul write this letter? Um, after this persecution took place, well, he had to leave pretty abruptly. And Paul and Silas, they fled to Berea. They left Timothy behind. We don't know if he stayed behind in the Thessalonica or maybe went back to Philippi. Berea didn't work out for Paul long-term, so he fled to Athens, and he instructed Timothy to come to him in Athens, and then he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. Like he, he mentions that in this letter. He goes to Corinth, and through all this, all this time, Paul has been very worried about the Thessalonians because they're facing persecution. He says, how is this church doing? And it, it, it says, um, when they when they could bear it no more, he um, he, had, he, had sent, Timothy, he sent Timothy already, and Timothy comes back and is quite encouraging, really. And um, and so Paul writes this letter in response, and his purpose is to encourage them, to correct them a little bit. There are some problems going on in this church and also to assure them about those who have already died, and to remind them of the second coming of Christ. Each chapter in this book contains a reference to the second coming of Christ. So we're going to read, now we're finally ready to read this passage, the first ten verses here of this chapter, which is only ten verses. We'll read the passage, and then I'll make some comments on those verses, and then we'll we'll try to draw a few kind of higher level Conclusions, and Gilbert is going to read the passage for us. 1 Thessalonians 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thess- Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you in peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, and the labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, both by God, that he has chosen you, because our God came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and his full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us, and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So this letter is from Paul and Silas and Timothy. Uh, They apparently uh, collaborated on this letter a bit. I think Paul did the writing, but maybe they collaborated. As Gabriel mentioned, uh, what was it, Philippians this morning? And uh, so maybe Paul said, you know, what should we write? And Timothy said, tell them that we are uh, so excited about their progress and we want to come see them. Or maybe Silas said, you know, tell them not to be idle, but to get to work. So maybe there was some collaboration going on in this letter. It is to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think in is a fairly important preposition there. When we think about our church and its relationship with God, we don't usually use the word in, I don't think. Uh, usually we think about our church being for God or because of God, but maybe we don't say in God. But it is. The Thessalonians were in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think our church is in God like, like the branches are part of the vine. Its vitality comes from God. And farther and down here in this passage, he mentions the, um, the role of the, the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so each part of the Trinity is involved here in, in supporting the church. Uh, this is not just, you know, Jesus' side project or, or the Father's, you know, brainstorm. Every part of the Trinity is involved in supporting this church. And grace and peace are natural outcomes. Verse 2, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Uh, Paul sets a... Uh, a pretty high bar for for prayer. And and he does it first by example. We're constantly giving thanks, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And later on in chapter 3, he says, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face. So he starts off by by setting an example. And then he commands them. Chapter 5, pray without ceasing. Again, chapter 5, brothers, pray for us. So we need to follow Paul's example. And what's what's Paul telling God about the Thessalonians? What is he talking to God about? Well, he is remembering, verse 3, before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The the emphasis of this prayer is thanksgiving. And Paul is, is so thankful for how the church is doing because he had been so worried about it. He, in chapter 3, says, when we could bear it no longer, we sent Timothy. And Timothy came back with a fairly encouraging report. You know, they, they've, got, they've got some problems, but considering how young the church is and where they've come from and their background with these this people, they are doing pretty well. And many of its members apparently can be described like this. They have a faith that works. A love that labors. A hope that is steadfast. And so when the church has those ingredients, it is on a good path. Verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has showed you, because the gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with conviction. Now, with your permission, you know, when a a speaker says, with your permission, he's not actually asking for permission. But chosen and election and so on, I would like to, you know, um, preach a sermon on that sometime, but not this morning. So I would like to kind of backlog that whole part of this verse for for future uh, homework. Uh, And I want to I want to focus on this part of our gospel coming to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That The, the phrase, not only in word, to me, is, is one of the most critical uh, phrases in this chapter because everything else in this chapter really hinges on that. It's an outcome of it not being only in word. And, and it really has a double meaning if you take a look at it. It can mean two things, and I think Paul intends it to mean two things. And to begin with, it means the Thessalonians received this not just as a word; they, they received it as later on he says as the word of God, and it it penetrated their hearts, it changed them, and they were very they, they turned from from their old ways. They were convicted. They were filled with the Spirit. They received powerful deliverance. But the other meaning of not only in word is talking about those who brought the word. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, verse 5. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And, and so it wasn't just, it was, not only, it was not only words in how it was received, but also in how it was delivered by by Paul and Silas and Timothy. And the commentator F.F. Bruce says the spiritual power and conviction with which the message was received matched the spiritual power and conviction with which it was delivered. And, you know, evangelism is most effective when the speakers are living the, the message. When, when the power of the gospel is shown in us, it, it convicts others. And I think that's why God uses such, maybe that's why God uses such frail agents, because they are living proof of the power of the gospel. And then this, this whole thing, this starts this chain reaction of the gospel. Paul, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they were like a nuclear bomb descending on Thessalonica. When they, they carried this gospel, not only in words, They starts this, this huge chain reaction. They, they are living imitators of Christ. And then the Thessalonians become imitators of the imitators. They're imitating Paul and Silas, and, and through them, imitating Christ. Verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in the Cai. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in the Cai, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere that we need not say anything, for they themselves report cr- concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so this 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 message just keeps spreading out, you know, one wave after another. From Paul to the Thessalonians to the entire province. Sounds like Paul's almost considering early retirement, which I don't think he's actually saying that he's saying. You know, your testimony, I don't even need to say anything. I don't even need to open my mouth about what's happened in Thessalonica because it's spread, it's speaking for itself. And the contents of the testimony is turning and serving and waiting. So let's talk about uh, this gospel and, and some of its aspects, the gospel and us. And i want to make three points about the gospel here. The first one is that the gospel is, is supposed to be, it is meant to be an ongoing experience, in 1 Corinthians fifteen, Paul says, "Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received. That happens in which you stand, still happening. You can, and by which you are being saved, still happening. The gospel is is not like um, a good audio book that you listen to once and that was interesting." You know, a lot of, you know, I would recommend somebody you should listen to this. It is not like you know, the wind in the willows. Listen to it was once; you're probably going to move on. Well, you might listen to it twice, but it's something you embrace and you live. I like Paul and Silas, and you did. That's, that's what the gospel is. It's life changing. You you continue to expose yourself to it. And you live it out and it's supposed to keep working. That's the first point. The second point is that Christians still need the gospel, kind of a natural outcome of the first point. Christians still need the gospel. The effects of the gospel on the Thessalonians were a labor of love, a work of faith, steadfast hope, joy in affliction, they were being an example. They were turning from idols, serving what is true. They were being delivered by Jesus. And all of those things were, were a product of the gospel. And they were all really things that you keep doing. You don't just, you know, I did something out of love once. You know, I once responded in faith, and now I'm done. These are all things that are a product of the gospel and they need to continue to be. We still need the gospel. The in needed what the gospel could bring forth in your lives. In chapter 2, Paul says, mm-hmm. and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. It's still at work. still working. Christians still need the gospel. And then the third point I want to make about the gospel is that it is, it is only powerful when it is more than words. It has to be more than words. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And when these people received the gospel, these, these changes began in them. They received the Holy Spirit, which is the power behind, behind the change. For others, who the gospel was just another interesting philosophy, kind of like the people of Athens maybe. It just bounced off. Hard earth bounced off. It made no difference. But for the Thessalonians in this church, they accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. You know, if you, if you find out that, you, if the doctor tells you that you have diabetes. You're going to have to make some lifestyle changes, right? And um, so he may give you some information that could be life-saving, a set of instructions that you need to follow that will prevent all kinds of trouble. Prevention.com says swallowing pills, checking your blood sugar all the time, or sticking yourself with needles full of insulin probably doesn't sound like your idea of a good time. But Taking steps to keep your diabetes under control, your best shot is preventing a flu with frightening complications. I don't think, you know, where is Joe? Sticking yourself with a needle doesn't look like much fun to me. But, and so, if, if, if the doctor gives you um, uh, the gospel on living with diabetes, then you need. To listen to it, and you don't just say, Oh, that's a very interesting, uh, uh interesting ideas you've got there. I appreciate your concern, but it just doesn't sound like it doesn't sound very practical, um, doesn't sound like much fun. So, uh, I just probably won't be doing this. So, you don't do that. Well, then, um, you know, you're your, your future can include things like other things that aren't much fun, like kidney failure, vision loss, amputations, and strokes, and so on. So, I guess what I'm saying this morning is, you need to be like Joe when it comes to the gospel. Uh, you need to make this um, a lifestyle um, something that you live out, continue let you apply. You don't just, you know, let the words bounce off of you. Not I want to be clear i 'm not saying that walking with Jesus is like giving yourself into the jobs. I think it is much more rewarding and enjoyable and and wonderful, but it is something that that they can 't just be um, words that we've we've heard once and they just kind of bounce off of us and we don 't respond to them they They have to be. Responding to the gospel has to be more than words. James 1 says, If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, where he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. And, and to hear the word without responding to it is it like looking in a mirror and walking off. A mirror is all don't much for you, really. I mean, other than providing information, they're not actually causing any changes. You know, I don't look in the mirror and then turn around and say thanks for the shade and leave a tip and walk off. It doesn't work like that. So the gospel, for it to be effective in your life, it can't just be words. It has to be responded to and accepted and, and obeyed and um, because it is the power of God. So, uh, just how to apply this? I thought I would. I would. Uh, I would start with this. Uh, here are a few ideas I have about how I'm thinking about what could be a sign that maybe the gospel is becoming prosaic. It's just becoming words. And I, I came up with a few signs, I think, that could be indicators that the gospel is, is um, not playing the role that it should in our life. High unemployment. Meaning we're not really doing that labor of love or the uh, or the work of faith that's talked about earlier in this chapter. Christophism. Verse um, 3 says, to love genuinely is great labor. And I think Christians really should not, not saying they shouldn't have free time, or or have hobbies, or, or do things for the fun of it, but we really shouldn't have hours and hours of just doing what we want, entertaining ourselves, doing things that have, have are not contributing to the kingdom at all. At some point, when, when there's too many hours devoted to things that don't contribute to the kingdom, you have to ask the question: what, what is going on? What is this an indicator of? Am I, am I really uh, producing works of faith and labor of love? So high unemployment could be a sign that the gospel is not—we're not responding to it like we should. Another would be joy shortage. If we are miserable people, and uh, look, we've, we've all got our problems, and. Thessalonians had problems too though. They did. I mean right away. They they um, as soon as they received the gospel, they took the teaching stepped in and, and they could have they could have been pretty mad at God about that. But it says that they found joy in the Holy Spirit. The gospel was real to them and, and so the spirit was at work in them and they found joy inside of it. So we should still have joy even when things aren't going well. I think that could be a sign. A third sign would be what I call idol retention. We've got things in our lives we just don't want to turn away from. Uh, The Gospel is supposed to spotlight those things. And we, and, and through the power of the Spirit, we should turn from them. If we've still got idols, then maybe the Gospel is just words for us. And so, um, those are just some warning signs. If you, if you see these in your life, I think one good thing to do would be to set aside, set aside some time for, for personal examination and look for what could be the cause behind the symptom. What are some things that could be contributing to this? I think doubt could be a problem. Are we giving into doubt if we quit believing? that Jesus can deliver us, that the Gospel is powerful. We quit believing that God is good. You know, if, you, if you're not believing God is good, it's going to be hard to believe the good news. Disobedience. That could be another another cause behind the symptoms. Uh, sin that is made in the Spirit. Distractions can be a cause behind the symptoms. You're just not spending time with God. You know, I've often heard the phrase, you know, don't try to do things in your own power. You know, I was just trying to live in my own power. I've always wondered, nobody really defines me, what does that mean? How do you do something in your own power and then not do something in your own power? Well, that was always confusing to me, but I think I've decided the definition to me is it means you're not um, you're not committed to building this relationship with Christ and, and and um, spending time with Him and, and talking to Him and so on, that you're not seeking that um, enough in your life. And, and I think that I think when we decide that's not important, I think that's how we, we do things in our own power or try to. So, there's some, some areas. Doubt, disobedience, distractions. Those are all things that can contribute to the gospel not being what it should be in our lives. So in conclusion, uh, the gospel is powerful, and you still need it. I still need it. It needs to be more than just words. And Tuesday night, Wayne Struck is going to start sharing the gospel with us. Romans one through eight, chapter one through eight, and one of the first verses we're going to encounter, which some would say is maybe the theme verse of the book, is this. And I will just close with this verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God bless you.